Please open your Bibles, if you would. Please, as has already been stated, this is our last passage in the book of Galatians, chapter 6. Galatians, chapter 6, 11 through 18. Galatians 6, 11 through 18. And as you're turning there, would you pray with me as well? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that it is the source and the only reliable source of objective truth on which we can stand, on which we can understand the things around us and the things to come and the glory that awaits those who trust in your Son. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to illumine our minds, to give us understanding of this passage, apply it to our hearts as you would have it applied, Use it for your glory to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 6, verse 11 through 18. And I should like to read it if you could follow along with me before we begin to unpack this. Verse 11. The New American Standard is what I use here. It says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that you may, they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision or is anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Well, as we see there, the Apostle Paul's closing words to this great little epistle to the Galatian believers in the region of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, basically. As we know that this letter has been from the Apostle Paul, has been a passionate plea to resist the false teaching of the Judaizers, the legalists, and to stay faithful to Jesus Christ. He has warned them, his readers, over and over of the dangers of their false gospel these false teachers have infiltrated these churches, as we've learned over these months, which was primarily, these churches were primarily non-Jewish, Gentile people who came to faith in Christ, new converts out of Gentile paganism, polytheism. They were taught by the Apostle Paul that salvation, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. And we might add to the glory of God alone. Apart from works, this is his message to these Galatians. The false teachers came, as you know, and they taught a different gospel. They taught faith plus obedience to the law of Moses. They taught salvation is faith plus works. In other words, faith in Christ is not sufficient. Faith in Christ is not enough, is what they taught. You must keep the law of Moses in addition to your faith in Christ. 
But I remind you, as Paul has been reminding us over and over and over, and just in case we're unclear, we have one more chance here this week, that that message is a false gospel. Therefore, it is a soul-damning gospel. As you know from our study, the Apostle Paul spent most of this epistle warning of the spiritual dangers of this false teaching. I remind you, just to set in your mind, chapter 1, he said, anyone teaches another gospel than the one that Paul preached, let them be accursed. Let them be damned, is what he says, because they're not from God. In chapter 3 of this letter, he asked the Galatians, who has bewitched you into following this false gospel? And he calls them foolish. Oh, foolish Galatians. In chapter 5, he warned them, if you follow these false teachers, if you follow this works-based gospel for justification, then Christ, he says in chapter 5, is of no benefit to you. In verse 4 of chapter 5, he goes on to say that if you follow the false teachers, you have been severed from Christ and fallen from grace. That's dangerous. Whatever that means, and we've already been through that, okay, it doesn't sound good, right? You don't want to be in verse 4. The bottom line of what Paul is bringing to the Galatians and the seriousness of it is found in the last verse of the second chapter, and he says this, If righteousness comes through the law of Moses, I had Moses, through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That is a big deal, because obviously Christ did not die needlessly. Now I remind you that the law of Moses was given by God to reveal our utter sinfulness and our inability to be right before God on our own, showing our desperate need of a Savior, our desperate need of a foreign righteousness, for we have no righteousness of our own that makes us acceptable to God. This is the gospel of grace. The gospel is the message of that Savior that we need. And once you come to faith in Christ... As you hear the gospel and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus, the law of Moses, according to Galatians, has done its purpose. You have been delivered from its bondage into the freedom of Christ. The law is seen as a tutor that gets us to the mature place, which is at the foot of the cross in repentance and faith. And once the law of Moses delivers you there, it's no longer needed. It's been accomplished Hebrews says the law of Moses to the believer is obsolete. It's no longer needed because it wasn't meant for justification and the law of Moses was not intended for sanctification. It was to take you to the foot of the cross. This is what the Galatians gospel has been teaching us. Wow. If you remember in chapter 5, verse 1, it was, listen to this now, it was for freedom that Christ set to us free Christ set us free Jesus Christ is our deliverer Jesus Christ is our savior Jesus Christ is our redeemer Jesus Christ is our champion he's our freedom fighter if you want to say our faith our trust is in him our freedom fighter our champion he is our joy he is our hope he is our life we read in Philippians 3, Paul's testimony. He is the treasure of the believer's soul. He's the supreme object of your affections if you know him. 
So says the gospel. You love him, though you've never laid eyes on him. First Peter says the same thing in verse 8 of chapter 1. Listen, and though you have not seen him, says Peter, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you re greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The gospel of free grace, which is the gospel of Paul, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the book of Galatians, the gospel of free grace is the message of this deliverance. And this deliverance, this freedom is through the cross of Christ. The gospel is the message of the cross. Now that sounds so unneeded. But trust me, it is needed. You hear the word gospel all the time, but you never hear what is the gospel. Gospel-centered, gospel, gospel priority, gospel supreme. That's great. What's the gospel? You see, the gospel. Listen, the gospel is about the message of the cross. Now, to us here, I know that sounds just foolish to have to say that, but please listen to what I'm going with. The Apostle Paul says in other places, 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, for instance, he says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Okay, Not in cleverness of speech, why? So that the cross of Christ, parallel with gospel, would be, not be made void. For the word of the cross, there it is again, which is the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In that same book of Corinthians, in chapter 2, verse 2, Apostle Paul writes, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him, what? Crucified. That's the gospel. The gospel is the message of a bloody, gory instrument of torture and execution that we turn into jewelry. I don't see people packing around electric chairs, you know. But yet, we have crosses. What do you think a cross meant to a first century person in the Mediterranean? What do you think a cross meant as a symbol to a Jew in first century Palestine? It meant death, execution. We've, we've scrubbed all the blood off of it and made it uh, non-offensive. The cross is extremely offensive. It is a message of a bloody, gory death on a rugged old piece of wood. It's a place of torture and execution is the cross. But we love it so because it's where our freedom was won. It is where freedom from sin and the flesh and long condemnation was won. Hanging on that old rugged cross is the sinless son of God, beaten and battered and bloodied, suffering and dying in our place. He is our redemption, this one who hung there. He himself is said to be our redemption. He is our salvation. Here here on the cross is God's glory. Here on the cross is God's grace. Here on the cross of Christ is God's mercy. Here on the cross is God's love. Here on the cross is God's righteousness. Here on the cross is God's omnipotence. All this on the cross. The message of a crucified king is not very flattering to the world. In fact, it's foolishness. It's moronic. 
They mock, the world does, and they scorn. My papa died of cancer at 54. I, I was saved a year before he died, and in God's grace, I got to spend the last couple weeks with, the, with him. He was a rank pagan, <laughs> and he uh, had one lung removed. He was on his, at the, on his hospital bed there, all wires and tubes, and I'm just saved of six or seven months probably, and I went there for one reason, and that was to share the gospel of Christ with my dad. And so I did the best I could there, and my dad talked like this, right, because he smoked all his life, and I have to do it that, because that's my dad, right? And my dad, who I thought was God before God saved me, <laughs> He's on his deathbed, and he looks at me, and he says, let me get this straight, boy. He called me boy. He goes, you mean to tell me a Jew dying on a cross 2,000 years ago is going to save my soul? I said, yes, you got it. That's it. <laughs> and he just was such disdain and mockery. He said, that's, I can't tell you what he said, because it's, it's a kid's show, but, <laughs> right? He just, it was absolute disdain, mockery. He's too intelligent for such a foolish word. About eight days after that, or less, no less, a few days after that, he was begging the Lord who hung on that cross to save his soul. Right? And probably two weeks before he died, and I got to close my daddy's eyes, he died in my presence as a saved man. Right? So, this message of a crucified king is not very flattering to the world. I mean, if we have relatives who are in prison, and I do, they're not the first things I usually talk about. Right? Can I tell you about my people who are in prison? You know, my criminal parts. You know, can I tell you about them? We don't usually do that. They're the closet. That's the skeleton in the closet. But Christianity is so radically different. We glory in the cross. We lift him high. He, this message of a crucified king that's not very flattering is a message that we boast in. The gospel, as we, if we say it right, is to boast in a crucified Savior. Do you remember Romans 1.16? Paul states that he was not ashamed of the gospel. Right? He says because it's the power of God to save. But why does he say that, that he's not ashamed? It's because it's a tough sell, right? It, it, and why is it tough? It's because it brings mockery. In fact, in our text, it speaks of persecution. The cross of Christ brings persecution, and that causes us to shrink and turn inward, and we are ashamed of the gospel. We're ashamed of speaking of a crucified king because it's not very flattering. As a result of this Shrinking back from the gospel message of the cross, you will hear from professing Christians, and I have to say this so we don't go there. They go on these short-term mission trips, or they go, you know, they do so-called evangelism stuff in the park, but they never talk about a bloody cross. They talk about giving away waters. That's the gospel. Or we go to faraway countries and dig water wells out in the middle of the desert for them. Well, that's a nice thing to do. I'm not saying don't do that, but don't call that the gospel, right? 
The gospel is about a bloody, gory cross. The gospel is about the Son of God hanging there in shame in your place, you see. But so many people want to make the gospel this. Oh, God loves you so much. He wants to give you so that you have no needs. Just come to him. Just come to church. And that's the gospel. That's not, God does love, yes, but it's through the rugged, bloody cross, <laughs> right? That's not the gospel. Think about this. Why are we so ashamed of that bloody cross? Because it brings persecution. In fact, because on the message of the bloody cross is to confront sinners with their sin, because why is he hanging there, right, as a substitute for sinners? Well, you're going to make people angry calling them sinners, but no one's going to really throw a rock at you if you go over there with a shovel in your hand and dig them a water well for nothing, right? Or hand a bunch of cookies out to them. They're going to say, hey, that's pretty good stuff. This American gospel is pretty good for us. Are you going to send more missionaries? We need more water wells, right? But as soon as you open your mouth and say, Jesus is Lord and you must abandon these false gods and come to him, guess what? Now they're throwing rocks at you. Now they hate you. Now it brings persecution. And now it tests whether I'm ashamed of the gospel or not. Now it's testing my allegiance to Jesus Christ. Do I have allegiance? You know, I've read of missionaries who go to Muslim countries and they tell, I've read this, I, believe, I can't believe it, and they tell the Muslims there that they go to that Allah and Yahweh are the same God. That is blasphemous. That is not true. Allah is not even real. Okay? Yahweh is the only true living God. Allah is not real. And when you look at Allah's attributes and Allah's practices, are you saying that that's how the God of the Bible acts? No. No, no, no. Right? But they say this. Christ, professing Christian missionaries go there without the gospel of the bloody cross because of what it will bring upon them by those to whom they speak. And if you go to a Muslim country, you must be prayed up and go there with a lot of courage. Because the message you're going to say is going to cost you your head. And you don't do them any favors going there not telling them about the bloody, gory cross. Because there's only one gospel. And there's only one means of salvation. And it ain't through calling Allah Yahweh. Right? And who's Yahweh? We're learning on Thursdays. Yahweh is Yeshua. Yeshua in the flesh is Yahweh. So you're saying Allah is Jesus Christ? That's blasphemous. But that's... What I'm saying here, why does Paul say I'm not ashamed? Because the gospel is a message that can bring persecution. And we, we can close down. The gospel of grace then, please, is boasting in a crucified Savior. That's the gospel. Yes, he's raised from the dead. But the center, the, the, the centerpiece is the cross of Christ. We boast in a crucified Savior. It causes me to ask, what is your boast? What are you boasting in? To boast, which we'll see in our text, means to take pride in something. It means to glory in something. It means to brag about something. It means to exult in. It means to praise. How does one brag about something? How do, how, how do we show that we are 
of a high opinion of something by constantly speaking, aren't we? We constantly tell about it. We boast in our children. We boast in our grandchildren. We boast in our heroes. We boast in our loved ones. And this is not necessarily wrong because Paul even says that he boasted in some of the believers like the Thessalonians, I took pride in you and I speak of you all the time. So there's a, there is a proper boasting. But of course, our favorite object of boasting is me, right? We, we like self-boasting. That's most of us do anyway. We love to talk about ourselves and our accomplishments and our abilities, real or perceived. And before Paul was converted, he boasted in his flesh, according to Philippians 3. He boasted in himself, which is to trust. He had confidence in his own works, his own achievements for justification. And since he was of this high opinion of himself and unconverted, don't you know that he spent a lot of time speaking about himself? Don't you know he did before he was converted? He was a Pharisee, wasn't he? Listen to what Jesus said to some Pharisees in Luke 18. Listen to this. And he also told this parable, Jesus did, to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. <laughs> That's a funny phrase to me, <laughs> praying to himself. God? I guess that's what he calls himself. Um, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who's back over here. I fast twice a week. He's telling God this. And I pay tithes of all that I get. That's self-boasting, by the way. What we boast of, now think of this. Now, this is a long introduction, but it's pretty self-explanatory in the text. What we boast of or in reveals what we truly believe. Okay? What we boast in reveals what you can't see in me, in my heart. It reveals it by my words. My boasting is my heart. Listen to some of these verses. It tells what I believe. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Simple enough. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now listen, not as a result of works, so that no one may, what? Boast. Boast in what? Boast in self. Okay? So if we understand salvations by grace, which is to receive, and faith, which is just to apprehend and receive it, we do not boast in me, we boast in him. You see, so what we boast in reveals my heart. It reveals what I believe. Now, God has chosen the lowly and the despised. He has, according to 1 Corinthians. Now, listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 29 through 31. Listen to this. He chose some, but the ones that he chose were not the high and mighty. They were the low ones, right, like us. <laughs> He says this, 1 Corinthians 1, 29 through 31, so that no man may boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All that is in Christ. Now, why did he do that? So that 
Just as that is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So if you're prone to brag, brag on Christ, right? And why would one brag on Christ? Is that you understand you've been saved by grace. And you receive everything by grace, you see. That's why you would brag on Christ. You, 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 you boast in him. You exult in him. That's why it reveals what's in your heart, you see. What I speak about most is what's most dear to me in my soul, in my heart. That's why grandparents are always saying, you want to see my grandbabies? Because they're so dear. Of course they are. That's why you have children. They have grandchildren, right? I have six of them. Praise God. But you know what? We better be speaking just as much, and I say this, we better be speaking much of Jesus Christ crucified, you see? Now, this is the point, all that to say this when we come to our text in Galatians, right? These are the point of the final words of Galatians. He contrasts the false teachers with himself in our passage, um, and he, as he summarizes the whole letter, He's deeply concerned, the apostle is, for their walk with Christ, as we know, because they have been tempted and some have actually gone astray from Christ into legalism. And this is his final word to them in 6.11 through 18. So we say this, Paul is telling them, no matter the cost, keep boasting in Christ. No matter the cost. In our, in our passage, 11 through 13, that he begins with a negative in what not to boast in. And verses 14 through 18, what we should be boasting in. But let's work through this real quick and see what God has for us. In whatever the cost, let us keep boasting in Christ. Look how he begins this first section of what not to boast in. Verse 11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now Paul usually used a scribe or a secretary to whom he dictated his words. Either he's referring here to the entire letter, which I don't think it's that, um, or just these final verses where he's saying, I've taken the pen in my hand and I'm writing in my own writing. And perhaps the large writing, some say, because he perhaps had an eye problem, couldn't see well, his letters were extraordinarily large. That might be what he's saying here. Or it might just be referring to that he's not a skilled scribe, and he's just not real good at handwriting. doesn't really matter, but what is it saying when he says this? Why does he say this? He's adding emphasis, urgency to his message. It's like saying, now I'm taking pen in hand and I'm taking the time to write to you even though my handwriting's not very good. One last plea to you. Listen to what I am saying. Please. It's, it's, it has that urgency. And in verse 12, he, he brings up the false teachers and he reveals there in verse 12 and 13, he reveals their motives. Get this, please. And remember, this is in contrast to himself when he, that he's going to get to in verse 14. In contrast, look at their motives. In verse 12, he says, Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They're concerned only about their outer appearance. They want to make a show. To whom do they want to make this show? Most likely from Galatians, it's the Judaizers from Jerusalem. It's the ones to whom they feared. And they wanted to look good to them. They wanted to look like good legalists. And so they are more concerned, according to verse 12, to how they look. They, it doesn't, it, they're trying to impress. 
We've all been there. Oh, wow, Spurgeon just showed up, right? Better, better preach our best, <laughs> right? Want to impress Spurgeon. You know what I'm saying? Who are they trying to impress? Judaizers. They're trying to make an impression, a good show in verse 12. Now, look what it says. They have no genuine heart concern. Legalists don't, by the way. It isn't because, get this in verse 12, it isn't because they really believe circumcision and law abiding is so beneficial to them. It's not because they love these Gentiles and they want them to know all the blessings that God has for them. So be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. No, they're not concerned about God's displeasure and this is how you're going to please him. It has nothing to do with that, according to verse 12. They're not concerned for the spiritual, physical blessing. But notice what it says in verse 12. In the middle of the verse, it says, those who are making a good show in the flesh, they try to compel you to be circumcised. They try to force you. The word compel means to force. They want to force you to be circumcised. Now, why do they want to do it? Is it about you? Look at 12. No, it's so that they would not be persecuted. They want to avoid persecution for themselves. Persecution because of the cross of Christ. Isn't that fascinating? So obviously these Jewish people coming are professing faith in Christ, but they're saying that you must keep the law. And in so doing, they're minimizing the cross of Christ and its message and its shame because they're afraid of persecution if they preached Christ. But the cross brings persecution from Jewish legalists. Why does it bring persecution? Because it is justification by faith alone apart from works of the law. Now get this. If your whole life is bent on living according to a standard and somebody comes and says, you don't have to do that anymore. The Messiah has come and he has fulfilled all that Moses wrote about. So you actually are freed from all this stuff that you're doing. Because the cross makes Moses obsolete. It makes him obsolete, says the book of Hebrews. Romans 10.4 says the end of the law for righteousness is Jesus Christ. It's faith in Christ. Galatians 3 says once the tutors delivered you to faith, it's no longer needed. But those who are so bent on legalism and works righteousness, you're showing them the futility of their religion and they take it personal and they want to do you harm. The cross of Christ doesn't humble the proud. You bet it does. It's calling you a sinner and you need to repent and believe. That's a humbling message. There's nothing you can do to earn the praise of God. There's nothing you can do to be justified in God's presence apart from faith in Christ. It humbles the proud and self-righteous. They could avoid, according to verse 12, they could avoid persecution by adding works of the law to the cross. Now get this. They're coming into a church. If anybody's going to come in here with a false message, they're not going to come and be so over so public with their denial of Jesus Christ and the cross. They're going to profess 
the name Jesus, right? They're going to mention the name Jesus, and they're going to come with their error. Because if you heard right off the bat, they don't believe that Jesus is God. You're not going to let them sit here and talk. So what these, what these Judaizers are doing are coming with this lip service to Jesus, but they're coming with the law of Moses. Then they do that to avoid the persecution of the cross. The more we do self-effort, we will eventually push Christ out of his place to where he's finally eclipsed in your mind. The more you fall prey to legalism and you are severed from Christ in grace. But look at verse 13. For those who are circumcised don't even keep the law themselves. He's going to explain further what he means by this persecution for the cross of Christ. Verse 13 starts with four. He's explaining out that why is this persecution. He says in verse 13, for those who are circumcised, those are Jewish people, of course, do not even keep the law themselves. <laughs> so what is, the, what, is the, what is his message here? They're hypocrites, truly hypocrites. We might do... Christians might do something hypocritical, but we are not hypocrites. Do you know the difference? Practicing hypocrisy is a hypocrite. Falling in and out of something, doing... A hypocrite is a known person who puts on a mask to show something different than they really are. Is that what you do? Are you a Christian? Is that what Christians do? No. These guys here in verse 13, they're telling these Gentile Christians that they should keep the law of Moses. And apparently, they say like this, like we do. But Paul says they don't even keep it themselves. They tell you to do it, but they don't even do it themselves. And they make, they, according to Matthew 23, they make you twice as, twice as much a son of hell as they are because they heap all this burden on you that they don't even do themselves. It's amazing. But Paul, Paul exposes them, you see, in verse 13. Those who are circumcised, those are Jewish believers, or Jewish people, don't even keep the law themselves. He continues, please look. But they desire to have you circumcised, Gentile Christians in the church here, so that they may boast in your flesh. Oh, my goodness. Look at that. They, 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 they're, they're concerned about their reputation. They want to boast in converts. Oh, they go back to Jerusalem and say, yeah, I went to Folsom Bible Church, man. I got 10 of those guys. I just got 10 of those people. Yeah, well, shoot, it's like J-Dubs, you know. They prayed him up on the stage and said, hey, give us your testimony. Yeah, this is what I told him, and we got 10 converts. Oh, give them a, give them a medal and a cookie, right? And that's all you're taking home, by the way, <laughs> right? It doesn't do anything for God to do that. But this is what J Paul is addressing here, these false Teachers, legalists, boast in your flesh. They want to brag about you submitting to their false teaching. They go back and report to their higher-ups, and they earn the applause of these others whom they want to please. And they brag about their, their converts. This is their own reputation. This is their own glory. They seek to please men. They want to hear the applause of men, but not of God. Please get this in this context here. What they are boasting in is a sign of unbelief. 
what they're boasting in, what's coming out of their mouth, is a sign of unbelief. They don't brag about God. They don't brag about Messiah. They don't brag about Jesus. They don't brag about Christ. They don't brag about him. They don't know him. They don't love him. So therefore, they don't brag on him. They brag on converting you to false teaching. They boast in the flesh. You're boasting, again, back to what I said earlier. What comes out of your mouth and what you boast of tells what's in my heart. These false teachers boasted in the flesh, in the works of the flesh, but not in God. In contrast, verse 14, look at what he says here. Paul is now the personal object here, and he's going to contrast himself with the false teachers. And if I understand and I am believing the gospel, I will then boast in Christ. Look at verse 14. starts with, but in contrast, may it never be. Very strong negative there. God forbid. God forbid, Paul writes in verse 14, that I would boast, I would brag, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. His bragging is no longer about self, but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. How fascinating. It's not even bragging on Christ. He says brag on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. To brag on the Lord Jesus, the cross of Christ, he does so because he knows. Get this now. Why would we brag on the cross? It's because we know, we understand, we, we, we believe, we trust in the crucified one. He knows that this is the place, Paul does, of his salvation, of his forgiveness. And in the death of Christ is his life. And so he boasts in the cross. His redemption is in the cross. His, re his full atonement has been accomplished in the cross. And so he brags on the cross. Notice what else he, in verse 14, notice what else he brags about here. It says in verse 14 that I would, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's fascinating. Notice crucified. Again, what is the, what is the, what is the picture painted? What is the point to be made is death, execution. The world has been put to death to him, and he, he says, I have been put to death, I to the world. That's interesting. The world is dead to me, says Paul. And in the context here, what does he mean by the world is dead to me? The world, the false religious systems, the, the vain philosophies, the fleshly desires that only promote man, that, per, that cause one to boast in self, what, what, what is the world? Listen to Colossians 2, 20 and 21. Listen to this. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, notice he calls them elementary principles of the world, not middle school, but lower. 
right? The building blocks. Why, as if you were living in the world, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch? That's called elementary principles of the world. Paul says the world has been crucified to me. Listen to 1 John 2.16. Different author, but I think it'll shed some light. 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the cosmos, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world has been put to death to Paul. The world's system, the world's disposition, which is against God, the world's lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life, that, that has been severed from Paul, according to his words here, that the world has been crucified to him. Not only that, but he says in verse 14 that I to the world... I have been crucified to the world. Through Christ, think of this, the world is dead to me, says Paul, and I to the world. Having been illumined in the inner man by the Spirit of God to see the amazing glories of the cross in the person of Christ hanging there and what was accomplished there. Think of this. And being... The Spirit has illumined his mind to that, the glories of the cross. He, he, he comes to count all things loss, as Philippians 3 says, for the sake of knowing Christ. His only desire now is one who has tasted of the Lord and found him to be good. His only desire is to brag on the cross of his Savior. The world has lost its grip on him. It has lost its attractions. Oh, sure, temptations come, and we may fall to a temptation, but we do not give an all-out pursuit as we once did. This is what he's saying. We boast in the cross because through the cross, the world is dead to me, and I to the world. Listen to Galatians 2.20. I remind you, Paul's already mentioned this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Romans 6.6 6 says it like this. Same human author, Paul, he writes in Romans 6.6. 6, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. When you came to faith in Christ, by, that, by virtue of that glorious, mysterious, awesome union with Jesus Christ, his experience became yours. His death became yours. In his burial, you were buried. In his resurrection, you are raised. And actually, Ephesians says, you are at the right hand of God right now in Christ Jesus. Amazing. In Christ, you have been crucified with him. Okay? What does that mean? That when you came to faith in Christ, what has happened to you is that the world has lost its attractions. It's no longer your number one pursuit. 
Perhaps your number one pursuit before conversion was money, gold. You just couldn't get more now more. You come to Christ, you no longer have that attraction. You no longer seek the, the glitter of that. It no longer holds you. You found you've been exposed to something greater. And the greater is Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the closing of Galatians. It's just amazing. And he says, and so what has happened there is that you're now dead to sin, to the power of sin. Doesn't mean you won't sin. You just won't sin like you used to sin. <laughs> right? It won't be who you are. It'll be actually abhorrent to you eventually, right? It'll be something like, oh, Lord, forgive me. You see, and you battle it, and you don't want it, and you don't like it. This is what he's talking about in the cru crucified, the world to me and I to the world. So I boast in the cross of Christ. Romans 6, 10, and 11 says this, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, Jesus. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, as a result of that, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is being crucified to the world. He's already said it in Galatians 5.24. He says this, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus, listen now, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Well, crucified only means one thing. It means death. <laughs> That's what happens on that old rugged cross, right, is death. Now, a radical change has happened, hasn't it, in the inner person, in the soul, and it's because of the cross of Christ, a radical transformation, not through your works of the law. Look at verse 15 if you're in Galatians 6. Look at what he says here. Four, explaining further this idea of being dead to the world for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision so neither the the ritual of that the jewish mosaic law abrahamic covenant put out there not only that sign of that covenant circumcision now that christ has come means nothing and if you're not circumcised means nothing what matters look at the second half of verse 15 is a new creation a new creation. Paul's written about this many times. It's, it's a glorious reality that has happened to each person who has come to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it like this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature. The old things have passed. Behold, new things have come. Through the cross of Christ and faith in Christ, you are a new creature. You are a new creature. Ephesians 2.10 says it like this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship. He has made us anew. Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness in the holiness of truth. The 
cross of Christ has broken the power of sin and has then unleashed, if you will, the powerful grace of God to transform the inner person of every person who bows the knee to Christ. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. So the power to change our nature is the cross of Christ. He changes both believing Jews and believing Gentiles and makes them new creatures. In verse 16 of our text in Galatians, why here? Look at what he says. He calls a blessing in verse 16 on those who will not fall prey to a works righteousness system. He calls a blessing on them in verse 16. Those who will stay faithful to the gospel of free grace will receive the blessing that he's calling in verse 16. Those who will boast in the cross of Christ and not in self. Look at verse 16. There's two groups there. Those who will walk by this rule, those who will live, be in step with this rule. What rule is he talking about? New creation, new creation through the cross of Christ, boasting in the cross of Christ. Those who walk by that faith, that gospel, verse 16, peace and mercy be upon them. And notice the second group, and upon the Israel of God. Upon the Israel of God. There's a lot of trees killed on what the Israel of God means. I'm just going to do it in about half a page here. <laughs> At least my opinion anyway, and I, I think it's right. Um, the Israel of God in the context is Jews, Jewish ethnic Jews who are trusting in Christ alone. Because in all the New Testament, in all the other 65 occurrences of the term Israel, it never, ever doesn't refer to ethnic Jews, ever. So why would it begin to start meaning something other than ethnic Jews here? Why do I say that? Some people say this is the church. This Israel is never equated with the church in Paul's writings. This is ethnic Jews who believe in Jesus Christ. Okay? So then... There's Gentile believers in Christ and there's Jews like Paul and others who believe in Jesus Christ. They are the Israel of God in this verse. Okay? That's my story and I'm sticking to it. I'll send you to different books if you are so inclined. Um, but in the flow of Paul's letter, he doesn't want us to get too sidetracked on a weed Okay, what is he saying? The, the key to this in verse 16 is, do you believe in the crucified one and the means of grace and faith in that Messiah who hung on that cross? And that's how you become a new creation. Those who walk by that peace and mercy upon them, whether you're Gentile or Jew. And then you come to verse 17. He begins to conclude his thoughts here. And he still speaks about himself. It's interesting how he puts himself forward to encourage his readers to stay the course, the narrow beam of the gospel of grace. He uses himself. He says, remember me, Galatians. Don't let these Johnny-come-latelys with their false doctrines sway you. Remember me, the apostle Paul, when I came to you. Listen, listen, he says. Verse 17, he gets a little grumpy here. <laughs> he says, from now on, right? Let no one cause trouble for me. 
And he says, I've had enough of your trouble. Leave it alone. Don't, don't, don't come bother me anymore. And notice why he says that in verse 17 in the second half. For I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Wow. That's fascinating, isn't it? Um, his physical body carried the particular distinguishing marks of what it means to follow Jesus. Right? These marks that he speaks about here identify him as a genuine, genuine article. Right? That he is the possession of Jesus Christ. Of Jesus. The brand marks of Jesus. It's fascinating. In the, the Greek term is stigma for mark, brand mark here. The stigma, we have, a, have a, we have a negative connotation, don't we? The stigma that comes with a certain whatever, um, and it has a negative shame element to it. The word stigma here is, Paul says, I bear on my body, my physical body, the stigma of Jesus, right? And those marks, now think about it, this word is used to brand the Phrygian slaves that worked in temples, which is in Galatia there. So they're religious slaves, they would brand them, and that was the stigma, and it was the brand mark that identified them with the deity, with the temple. It's like branding a cow, branding a horse. You put your brand on it, you know that's mine, right? This is what Paul is saying. He says, I bear in my body the brand that I belong to Jesus Christ, right? Now think about that. He says to the Galatians, I bear in my physical body these, these marks. And if you remember in Acts 14 in the Galatia area, that they, some of these people probably experienced and watched Paul be stoned, like in Lystra and Derby. In Acts 14... Verse 19, listen to what uh, Luke says here. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, now those, those places are in the Galatia region, having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So he's probably got scars on, at least on his head, <laughs> from these rocks that are being thrown at him. And you remember what he wrote in 2 Corinthians when the false teachers said they were servants of Christ. Paul is forced to say, you want credentials? You want evidence that I am a servant of Jesus? Okay, here they are. And listen to what he says. And I think these are part of the brand marks of what he's talking about. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 27. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? He's talking about false teachers. I speak as if insane, I more so. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, that's bound to leave a mark, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, like scourges, that probably left a mark. Three times I was beaten with rods, that probably did too, if there's any place left for a mark. Once I was stoned, and we read that in Acts 14, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I spent... In the deep, I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Whew, I'm out of breath. 
Those are the brand marks of Jesus. Because why does he have those scars? By boasting in the cross of Christ. That's why he has those scars. So as we close our thoughts here, I ask this question. Do you believe that Paul believed the gospel of free grace? Yeah. Did he believe it is the only message that saves sinners? Yes. Was he convinced that any addition to grace and faith is evil? Yes. Yes. He finishes in verse 18. Notice where he started this letter in the first chapter. And it's to ask that Christ might bestow grace upon them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Isn't that amazing? He closes with the word brethren after he hammered him for six chapters. So you know it's out of love. You know it's out of love. And he asked that God would be gracious. So then I close with this. As we leave an old friend, kind of. Galatians has been good for me. What do you believe? What do you believe? Who do you trust in? For salvation. When people hear us speak, who would they say that we boast in? Who do we boast of? Well, let it be verse 14 of Galatians 6, and then we'll pray. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of free grace. And we thank you that it has gone around the world and transformed many a sinner into saints. And many self-righteous legalists into grace-preaching servants. We thank you for saving the Apostle Paul and moving him to write these epistles, we, we praise you for your work of grace in that man. We thank you for the work of grace in our own hearts. We are stunned by that. And we ask and pray that you would continue to show grace to sinners in our midst. I pray, Father, you will use Folsom Bible and, and those who preach the gospel of free grace around this area, around this state, around this country, that we would stand firm for Christ in the midst of persecution because we believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So help us to be faithful, Father. We love you. Thank you. Uphold us and sustain us, please. We give you the praise for you certainly are worthy of all that we can muster. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.